was turned off. Okay. <laughs> um, so yes, thank you, Kyle, for, for teaching that. Okay. All right. So this week we are back into the book of Revelation. We are going to wrap up Revelation chapter 3 with which two, chapters 2 and 3 walk us through the seven churches. And we have made it through six out of the seven. So this week we'll wrap up by looking at Laodicea. And then, as the Lord permits, we will move into chapter and begin to explore what is a truly glorious chapter of the throne room of God. So, um, before we dive into Laodicea, does everybody have notes? Let me, does anybody need notes? More are being printed right now. One, two, three. Excellent. All right. So as we've worked through the seven churches, I want to do just a, a quick review of the seven churches, not go into any detail, but just kind of give an overall of what is going on uh, as John is given this vision and this vision that he is given, which is the book of Revelation, the unveiling of Christ, who Jesus is in his victory. This vision is to be sent to historical churches before the fall of the temple, before AD 70, that they would receive and be encouraged by what's going on in the world, understand how to view what's going on in the world, um, and be encouraged that Christ is on the throne and that he is victorious over all of it. He is, he is sovereign over the tribulations and the turmoils of the day. And this message, this letter that is the book of Revelation is going to be sent out to these historical churches. And within the book of Revelation, we begin with the introduction in chapter 1, which begins like a letter, right? It begins like a letter. And then we move into this description of who Jesus is. And that begins in verse 9 of chapter 1 when John says, I was in the spirit at Patmos on the island. He's given a vision of Jesus. We go through that vision. And then in chapters 2 and 3, there's individual letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And these seven letters are almost like personal notes, personal warnings. There were some faithful churches. There were some unfaithful churches, right? So as these churches received the letter that is Revelation as a whole, they would be reading through it, and they would come to a personalized message to them. Words of encouragement, words of rebuke. But ultimately, uh, words of hope if they repent or if they continue to follow Christ faithfully. So what John does in these seven letters is he, he wraps up all of the old creation, the old covenant, by each of the letters representing a different time in redemptive history. So in Ephesus, I believe this is in your notes, Ephesus corresponds with Eden, a lot of the language of the tree of life and so on. Smyrna represents the patriarchs. Pergamum represents the wilderness wanderings. Thyatira represents the kingdom age. This would be David and Saul, or Saul, David, and Solomon. Thyatira, or Thyatira is the kingdom. Sardis is judgment and exile. If you remember after Solomon has 
uh, his son. You have Jeroboam, Rehoboam. There's a conflict on who's going to be king. The kingdom splits, right? The ten tribes to the north, the two to the south. Uh, and then there is just constant rebellion and, um, and exile. God sending Israel into exile for punishment. So Sardis represents that. Sardis is a very unfaithful church. And then you have Philadelphia, which would represent coming out of exile back into uh, the land, restoration. And then we move up to Laodicea, which is the age of apostasy. Now, this is the age that Jesus finds himself being born into. When he puts on flesh, he enters into this age of apostasy. And this age continues until the temple is destroyed. So it's the intertestimonial period between uh, the last prophet, the 400 years of silence, this is where you have the Maccabean revolt and all sorts of things that take place. The, the high priest uh, position is bought and sold with the Roman Empire. You've got, you have a high priest that actually crucifies, I think it's 600 other priests of Jerusalem during a garden party, right, outside because they were standing against Rome at this time, right? It, it, the, the whole priesthood, everything is so corrupt. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are coming out of this. The Pharisees are the conservative Bible scholars that want to hold to the Old Testament law. They want to follow God faithfully. Then you have the Sadducees, which is like the liberal church that is in bed with the government authorities, and they really don't care about prophecy or anything. They're just using Judaism as uh, a means of personal gain and benefit. Okay, so you have all of this stuff going on during the apostasy period, which culminates with exile again, or complete destruction when the temple is destroyed in AD 70. So, uh, Laodicea, let me open up my Bible here, is in chapter 3, and we'll start with, with verse 14. But before that, um, understanding that the, uh, the reception of Jesus, as we've even gone through the gospel of John, and this is true of all the gospels, you see the reception of Jesus is anything but welcoming, right? There is a kind of a deadness to him or a hostility to him or even just a apathetic, lukewarm sort of acceptance of Christ as the Messiah who comes. This is the characteristic of that apostate age. Laodicea was one of, if not the wealthiest city in the region. It was an important center for emperor worship. Now, the pastor, the angel, remember we've talked about this, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea, this word angel just means messenger, uh, and I've tried to convince you that this is not a divine angel that represents different churches, but rather this is referring to the pastors of the church. Right? So speaking to the pastors of each of these churches. So to the angel of Laodicea, this angel or this pastor has absolutely nothing going for him in the eyes of God. Right? When Christ speaks to Laodicea, there is n he, he commends him for nothing. It is only rebuke. It is a very poor, pitiful, wretched, miserable church, as he goes on to describe in just a little while. The pastor is not commended for anything, but rather he is proud, proud of his, of his wealth, of his wisdom, of his status within the city. He has become perhaps a celebrity pastor that really does not care at all about the word of God, 
but is far more interested with his own status and the status of his church. All right? He thinks he needs nothing, but the true condition is that he is blind, and he is blind to his utter dependence upon Christ. He doesn't understand how much he needs Christ. So to 314, it says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen. Here's a title for Jesus. The faithful and true witness, the second title of Jesus, and the beginning of God's creation. All right, so at the very beginning, we have these three titles of Christ, these three descriptions of Christ. Um, These are the words coming to you, Laodicea, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. Now, all three of these, when they're understood, would strike fear into the hearts of a rebellious church or a church that was lukewarm or apathetic to Christ. The amen, we often think about this word amen as just being a word that says we just agree with God, right? That, that's how it's oftentimes described, and that is true. It certainly doesn't mean anything less than that, though oftentimes we even don't even know what it means. We just say it at the end of a prayer. It's almost like a little cantation at the end of a prayer, amen, therefore it works, right? However, this word amen is a very, very profound word. It is not just something we say at the end of prayers or creeds or worship, but it is a word of an oath, a promise, a covenant. And to say amen is actually to place yourself underneath the full weight of this oath or this covenant. To say amen is to say, I'm going to live in this, and if I break the oath or the covenant, may the curses of that covenant fall upon me. It is a very powerful statement, right? If we say amen at the end of a prayer, we are saying, if the, if the covenant is broken, may all of the curses of the covenant come upon me. May I receive it. It is a word, a word of oath and participation with the covenant. We see this in Numbers 21 and, and multiple other places in, uh, in the scriptures. So for us to say amen at the end of a prayer at the end of worship, is a way for us to recognize that our salvation is wholly dependent, not upon our keeping of the covenant, but upon Christ's keeping of the covenant for us. Because if Christ was not faithful to keep the covenant, we better not say amen. (laughs) Because we know we break covenant all the time. We are incapable of keeping the, the covenant. So if Christ had not been the one who perfectly keeps the covenant and we are identified in Christ, then we should never say amen. But the fact that we are identified with Christ and he is the covenant-keeping God, then we can say amen because of who we are in Christ. That is the, how profound it is to say amen at the end of a prayer. Amen. <laughs> so for Jesus to say that he is the amen, what he is saying is that he is the covenant-keeping God which is not good for the Laodicean church because they are living their life as if they are not in Christ. They are removing themselves from Christ. And if they remove themselves from Christ, they are no longer under his covenant headship. Thus, they will feel the full weight of the covenant curses if they do not repent and return to Christ. 
So he is the amen, the covenant-keeping God. And not only that, but he is the faithful and true witness. He is the faithful martyr. He is the faithful um, judge. He is the one that has eyes to see, and he sees the hearts of men. He sees the whole world. Nothing gets by him. He's not tricked. He's not, he doesn't fall prey to schemes of the world or the tricks of the wicked ones. But rather, he is the faithful and true witness. He sees all the way it actually is. Do you ever have those conversations with people who are just trying to confuse you in order for you to not see through them to that thing that they're trying to hide? Lots of words, but they're not really saying anything. It can be manipulation. It can be gaslighting. It can be moving things to the side, right? Jesus doesn't fall for any of that. We can leave a conversation and say, I don't, I don't even know which way is up. Um, I, had, I, I knew someone years ago that, when people would go in to have a meeting with this person because they were upset about something that, that he had done, they always left the meeting feeling like they did something wrong. Like, I, I don't even know what happened. I went in because I was offended by what, what, what this person said, but by the time I was done, I felt like it was my fault, and I'm leaving feeling like I'm beaten up, right? This is the sort of thing that the Laodicean church would be doing. They would it'd all be sh- shadows and mirrors and, you know, um, sleight of hand sort of lies to keep you looking over here, feeling a certain way, but in reality, they've got all sorts of deplorable motives going on. So again, Jesus being the faithful and true witness, he sees through all of it. This is what he means. So in other words, they can't trick him. They might have everybody else fooled, but they cannot fool the one who is speaking to them. And then it says that he's the beginning of God's creation. Now there's Two aspects to this is the arche of God's creation, which is the firstborn. So there's one piece that we want to look at and say, well, what creation is Jesus the firstborn of? And then what does it mean to be the arche, the, the firstborn, the beginning of creation? Well, first of all, we see that he is the firstborn of the new creation, right? This is what Paul says. When he was resurrected from the dead, he is the second Adam that comes out of the dirt, having the spirit breathed within him, the first gardener, all of this second Adam sort of typology that we see in Jesus' life. But as the firstborn of creation, that means he is the ultimate authority of that creation as well. He's the firstborn son. He is the one that has been given all authority in heaven and earth. So he is the one who has the authority to judge. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the God that sees through all of their tricks, all of their manipulation, and he is the judge who is the the ultimate authority who has the right and the call to judge. So already it's not starting off very well for the Laodicean church. And then this God, this Christ, who sees all, who keeps covenant, who has the authority to judge, says this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, right? So as a faithful and true witness, as the covenant keeper, he knows their works. I I see what's going on here. And the reality is you're not cold and you're not hot. Would that you were, in other words, I wish that you were, or you should be, either cold or hot. Verse 16, he says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. All right? So first, we want to see that the hot and cold language does not mean 
Hot is good, like you're on fire for the Lord, and cold is bad as if you are cold-hearted. That's not what he's saying, right? In Laodicea, you have hot springs with all of these minerals. It's good for healing. People would go, and they would bathe in these hot springs, uh, and it, would, there, it was medicinal even. And then you have this cold creek coming from the mountain that would bring cold water, fresh water, to drink, right? Hot water is good for medicine or for cooking or for many things. The cold water is good to drink. But there was a spot between Colossae, the road to Colossae, and Laodicea, which is kind of up on a hill, where these two streams would meet and there would be a pool of water that would just sit there. And it was stagnant. It was a cesspool. It was disgusting. It was, if that water is good for nothing, right? It is lukewarm. And if you were to drink it, you would become sick, which is what he's saying here. You are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I will spit you. Literally, the word spit means vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth, right? It's not a, oh, that's gross, and spit it out. It is a full-body um, repulsion to what, what, they, what they are as a people, okay? Now, to vomit out of your mouth actually has Old Testament ties to the covenant, Right? So there's covenantal language going on here. What does it mean to be vomited out of the mouth of Christ? Well, in Leviticus 18, it says this, verses 27 and 28. For the people of the land who were before you, so Israel is going into the land, they're getting excited for the land, God is making covenant with them on what it means to be in the land and so on, uh, though they haven't yet entered it, right? Uh, but everywhere they're going, they're fighting, and they are actually taking land in different ways. So for the people of the land who were before you, so this could be the Philistines or the Canaanites or, or whomever, they're in the land before you, did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Now there's a fantastic theology that I would love to dive into at some point as far as how does the earth become unclean. Um, the high priest would go in and sp sprinkle blood on the altar, on the four horns, and then he would do it on the ground as well to atone because the land itself has become unclean, which is really interesting. So the land itself has become unclean. Then verse 28, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that was before you. So the land has vomited out the nations before because they have lived rebellious lives upon that land. And he's saying, Israel, I'm, I'm bringing you in. And you have to live faithful to the covenant. And if you don't, if you sin against the land, if you have these abominations against the land, then the land will vomit you out as well. And this is exactly what happened with exile. Right? They're living in the land. They are not living faithfully. And the land vomits them out. It, that is um, an expression with different plagues or famines that come to the land is this idea of the land rejecting the people of God. It is a vomiting out. And this is in the curses and blessings of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, or 27 and 28, that bring all of this information out on how the land will respond if you don't walk faithfully with God. So you have Israel being vomited out of the land, and you also have kind of a little precursor of this, a little micro vomiting in the Garden of Eden when, when Adam and Eve sin by taking of the fruit that they shouldn't have, disobeying God, and they are kicked out of the land, kicked out of the garden, 
out of paradise, this is what sin does. It removes us out of God's sanctuary for us. Okay? So what this means for the Laodiceans is you are in danger of being vomited out of the mouth of Christ. You are in danger of being kicked out of the covenant. If you are not faithful, if you do not repent, the, the, the borders of the garden, the borders of the kingdom, the borders of Christ, which is the church, will throw you out. This is laid out explicitly in Matthew 18 and in 1 Corinthians and in Hebrews as it relates to church discipline, right? Church discipline is a vomiting out. It is bringing somebody in, calling them to repent. They say no, bringing them before multiple people. They still say no, bringing them before the church. And if they still say no, right, if they refuse to repent, you are to hand them over to Satan. Treat them as a sinner or tax collector. They are removed from the covenant people of God. And you are not just to treat them as an unbeliever, you are to pray for them as an unbeliever. You are to see them. You are not a Christian, right? And we, we pray for your salvation that you'd be saved. This is the sort of vomiting out that the Laodicean church is in danger of, being removed from the covenant. So what is it that they did that made the king, the judge, the amen, faithful witness, so sick? What made the Lord so sick? Verse 17 says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You think you are all of that, yet you are absolutely nothing. The posture of thinking I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing is the posture that we see with the Pharisees and the Sadducees when Jesus comes onto the scene. They have it all figured out. We see this particularly um, even from last week's uh, passage in John chapter 7 where they are, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests are so upset that the officials have not arrested Jesus. And remember, the officials said, no one speaks like this man. And they say, have you been deceived also? In fact, if no, basically what they say is, if if no leaders of Jerusalem believes in him, then you shouldn't either. We have it figured out. We know what's going on. Mark's gospel brings up the financial gain and loss, the financial threat that Jesus presents on the temple. There's a financial stability that these religious leaders have with abuses in the temple that Jesus is willing to um, turn over for them. When he turns over the money, uh, the money changers in the temple. That is a big hit to the economy for those Pharisees. They think they have everything. I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Yet when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, he basically calls them wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Right? This really does emphasize those religious leaders of Jesus' day. So it goes on. What does Jesus say to them? I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined by fire. But it says, in response to your horrible condition, here are three things you need to do, right? Buy from me these three things. Gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, actually rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see, right? Three things that you need to buy. 
You need to buy gold, you need to buy clothes, and you need to buy eye medicine. (laughs) These are the three things. So why these three things? They correspond to what they think that they have. They say they're rich, wealthy, and without need, but that's not true. In fact, morally, they're wretched and miserable. And then physically, they're actually poor, blind, and naked. So what, I mean, spiritually, but those, those three categories are what he addresses next. You're, you're poor, so what do you need? You need to buy from me gold. You're blind, so what do you need to buy from me? Is this I solve, and you are naked, so what do you need to buy from me are these garments so that you might clothe yourself. So not only do we see Jesus speaking to these, these three things that they need, but these three things are better understood when we read them in light of the Garden of Eden. Because these three things, if we think about this phrase, um, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, where, where would our minds go? If we think of stories that would associate with that sort of language, the Garden of Eden, right? The Garden of Eden actually has all three of these things. The most challenging to understand, and I'll explain it here in a second, but the most challenging whoops, is the, the gold refined by fire. What is gold refined by fire? What does that mean in the symbolic language of Revelation? Jesus says, buy from me gold refined by fire. Throughout the Bible, gold is associated certainly with wealth, with power, with authority, with royalty, and with wisdom. Okay? Solomon's temple is the most glorious structure in all of the Old Testament, right? And it is just layered with gold, gold everywhere, right? Kings are those who have golden crowns. They sit on golden thrones. They are, they are represented by signet rings of gold, right? Gold is a kingly sort of metal in the Bible. And it's also associated even with wisdom. Ezekiel 28 says this, By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself. So because of your wisdom... And your understanding, you have actually made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries, right? So gold is associated with kings, and kings are associated with wisdom, right? Solomon, the, most, the wisest man who's ever lived, associated with the temple. There's all of these connections with gold and wisdom and royalty and so on. So if we were to look at gold that you are to buy from Christ, what is it that he's saying? You are to buy wisdom, <laughs> Come to me for wisdom refined by fire, the wisdom that is able to make it through the fires of tribulation and bring you through to the other side refined, right? It is character. It is maturity. It is being able to walk through something with integrity like a good king. We could boil that down to understanding, as he says here, or wisdom, by your wisdom and your understanding. So with that in mind, think about the gold, we begin to look back at the Garden of Eden, and we see Eve going to the tree, and do you remember the first thing that she does when she sees the tree? It says that she, she saw it. She saw that the fruit was good. Actually, I think I might have the verse. I do. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. There's the wisdom and the gold. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is the kingly tree that you are to eat when you grow up and become mature. It's judicial knowledge. It's been able to judge and discern things rightly when it's not black and white in the Bible, right? It goes from being children in the faith that you're told exactly what you must do. You have to obey these commands. Then you become an adult, and no one's telling you what you have to do, and Now you have to figure out, what's the wisest decision here? Do I buy this house or that house? Do I marry this girl? Do I marry this man? Do I take this job? Do I move to this state? There's there's no obedience in that. You have to exercise wisdom. This is what the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented. When Adam and Eve grew up, they were to take that and have perfect wisdom. Solomon, the great king, when he prayed for wisdom, people come to, uh, come to see him and hear him speak, and they were astonished because he had the knowledge of good and evil, the exact same phrase from the, the tree in the garden. So Adam and Eve, they, they, she sees it, right? She wants to be wise, and then she eats of it, and then what happens? They realize that they're naked, and they hide themselves in shame. So then when we come back to our verse in Revelation, I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined by fire, buy wisdom from me. Don't reach out for that fruit when you are not supposed to. That's unwise. Come to me for it. So that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves from the shame of your nakedness, that, you, that your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you might see, that you might discern things rightly. When Eve looked at the tree, she made a judgment call, and it was poor judgment. Same word is used for for God in the creation account. When he looks at his creation, he looks and he says, it is good. That's a a wise judgment. Eve looks at the tree and she saw that it was good and she acted on it with false wisdom, with false judgment. Okay, I want to get through the last couple of verses and then we will, I'll pray for questions. Almost done, yep. Those, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove. And discipline, so be zealous and repent and repent. So those whom I love, in other words, there's still hope for you, Laodicea, right? You are my bride, I do love you. There is there is there is time for you to repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. It's not gonna be easy. And when this comes, this discipline that if you continue to reject will result in church discipline, which is to be removed from the covenant, so be zealous and repent, right? Be aggressive in your repentance. Run after repentance with everything that you have. Then in verse 20, perhaps one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he eat with me. Okay? Now this, if you could imagine, uh, is actually not an evangelistic verse. Right, this the verse of saying, "Well, Jesus is at the door knocking, and salvation is to open the door and have Him come in." That's not what's going on here. He's talking to a church, to those who are believers but are in danger of walking away from the faith. Right, and Jesus, in this scenario, this church has actually closed the door on Jesus, and they are living their life 
with him outside. And Jesus, being the faithful one, is at the door, loving them, wanting to reprove them, wanting to discipline them, wanting them to repent, is, repent, is knocking at the door. So if they will open it, what that means is they have stepped toward Christ in repentance. You open the door, and then what is the result? I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. This is talking about the Lord's Supper, right? In, in church discipline, historically, uh, for, for verses like this, church discipline, when that is happening, and someone is under church discipline, it is not a process of shunning somebody. It's not a process of disowning somebody. It's not a process of ignoring somebody or shaming them. It is a process of trying to have them open the door for Christ so that he can come in and eat. So when someone is under church discipline, the only thing that they are not allowed to do is come to the Lord's Supper. That is what they are banned from, barred from, because they are not in right relationship with the church and they are not in right relationship with Christ. They, they ought not come and sit at his table when he's mad at his bride and mad at the groom, <laughs> right? So don't come to the table until you, you repent. And then the encouragement for those under church discipline is to be aggressive, zealous towards repentance. So that if you hear Christ knocking, you open the door and he will come in and he will dine with you. In other words, you come back to the table. It goes on, to the one that conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. That's the ultimate authority. So I also, as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. Okay, any questions on Laodicea? Adam. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. Yeah, that's good. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's funny. Hopefully it wouldn't be a curse with Brahms, but <laughs> Spangles. And let's see, Erica. Which verse are you talking about? Three fourteen. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. So really it's just looking at the, trying to pay attention to the language and, and why it's being used the way it's used, right? So amen here is used as a title, but that is not typically used as a title, but rather it's, it is something that is uh, connected at the end of a doxology. Paul does this often. Uh, at the end of a prayer, and so on. So why is it used as a title? So with a word like amen, you can do a, a word study on that. 
and see where it's used all throughout the Bible. And then when you look at that, you'll see that it's used in the context of oaths, curses, covenants in the Old Testament. Um, Numbers, I think I have it written down. I think it was Numbers 21. No, Numbers 5, excuse me. Numbers 5 is, is one. I'll just read it for us real quick without giving the full, the full context, but you can get a, an idea just from a couple verses. Numbers 5, verses 21 and 22. It says, Then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may the water that brings the curse pass into your bowels, this is very aggressive language, and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away, and the woman shall say, amen, amen, right? So this oath and this curse of what will happen to her if she continues to uh, commit adultery uh, is, is the context. Um, this sort of curse will happen, and you, woman, are to say, amen, amen. In other words, you are to put yourself underneath of all of that, okay? So it is language, and it's used other places in Numbers, and, and really quite a bit in the first five books of the Bible in the Pentateuch. Um, so then you could look at that and say, okay, so how is this word being used in relation to other words and so on? And it's, it's covenantal language, meaning that I submit myself to the covenant, which then helps us understand when, as Christians, when we say amen, we are absolutely putting ourselves underneath the curses of the new covenant, which is eternal damnation, yet we do that in our prayers. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. You died on the cross for our sins. You, you have bore the curse in our place, right? Um, that we do that underneath the cross because that is where he took the curse for us. Um, so we can say amen because of what Jesus did, um, that he took our broken curse sin upon himself. Then the faithful and true witness, this word witness is the word martyr, and uh, another word study on that, we'll see that martyrs are not just those who die for the faith. Martyrs are killed, but you're not killed because you're, you're not a martyr because you were killed. You were killed because you're a martyr, all right? So a martyr is one who testifies truth in an ungodly world, right? They testify truth. They speak light into darkness. Um, that is what it means to be a martyr, now, throughout history, we call those who have died martyrs, but in the purest sense of the word, that is, death is what comes to martyrs. So he is the faithful and true witness, the one who sees and testifies rightly. And then, then the beginning of God's creation, Paul has language uh, through, in, in Colossians particularly. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, this beautiful hymn uh, talking about Christ being the firstborn of the new creation. Uh, and that's in, in Corinthians 15 as well. Uh, so, and then that word arche, which is the beginning, again, has that kind of double meaning of it, just firstborn, but there's also benefits that come with that. And the benefit is it's connected closely to the word archon, which is ruler that we saw early on in Revelation. So those, those things work together to show authority as the firstborn of the new creation. Yeah, just some word studies, kind of following it through and, and seeing how it works. Yep.
Yeah. But, but also, you know, as, as you do that, as you continue to read, and Revelation is such a good book to practice because it is so full of symbolism. It's, it's, it's calling us, it's, it's demanding us to interpret it symbolically. Um, so it's good practice to say, what does this word mean? And Revelation uses the Old Testament all the time. So um, we can, by reading Revelation, it actually trains us to be good Bible readers. Um, so eventually those words are just more familiar with, with what they mean. Yeah. Sean? Okay. Job 28, connection with wisdom and gold. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's really good, and I think a way that you can get to the get to that conclusion, thinking about how is it that words come out of our mouths, and and now he's spitting us out of his mouths, and the power of words, right, is even within Revelation in chapter one and in chapter eighteen, it talks about Jesus as the one who has a sword that comes out of his mouth. It's actually like a bladed tongue is the idea of it. So it's words, and 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 the the two-edged sword aspect of that is he speaks, and it's, I mean, this is why we call the sword of the Spirit, right? Uh, in, in Ephesians, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the very words of God, the sword that comes from the mouth of God. And that sword, according to Hebrews 4, um, not only is a, a weapon that we would destroy um, enemies with as the context of the armor of God, but it is also a sword that destroys us, right? So we likewise get chopped up by this sword, and rightfully so. Um, so within that, there's, there's covenantally, it's the blessings and the curses would be almost the two edges of that sword. So to, this idea of this God who speaks with such power to create the world, this God who speaks with a sword that is able to carve us up um, and either put us back together or send us away um, is very powerful. So the idea of us being spit out is really to say we are falling on the judgment of those curses, um, that we are, we are being chopped up and we need to have an atonement, you know, uh, to, to be put back together, a resurrection, which would be repentance. So, yeah, I think that's a really good correlation to, to see those things connected. Brandon, did you have your hand up? Oh, okay. Oh. Oh, it wasn't to me. Oh, I see. 
That's because he's looking this way. So. <laughs> Any other questions? Erica. Yeah. It is. Yeah, so it, the word is angelos, which means messenger. That's the best translation. So oftentimes, messengers come from God, like Gabriel, right, is an angelos. Uh, but we also see Paul is an angelos. He is a messenger of the gospel. Uh, and that word is used throughout the Old Testament for both human and divine beings. They just, they're messengers. Yeah. Fairly generic term. Good. Other questions on Laodicea? Okay. Well, we will not get very far in chapter 4, but that's okay. We'll get far enough. Okay, so chapters 4 and 5 really work together. Okay, they are, it's one scene. Chapter 4 sets the uh, sets the stage for us, and then chapter 5 zooms in on the drama that takes place on that stage. I think that's a pretty decent way of saying it. Um, I want to read for us chapter 4 because hearing it, I think, is really important. And I'll read a little bit into chapter 5 as well, not all of it. And then I have just a, a couple preliminary comments on, on this passage, overview sort of stuff on chapter 4, and then we can get into the details in the weeks to come. Okay, Revelation chapter 4 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, or ancient ones, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne was burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had, or each of them with six wings, are full of, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the, night, in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So you can kind of see how this drama just really picks up as we go from chapter four to chapter five. Chapter four is John's entrance into this throne room, right? He's brought into the throne room and chapter four describes to us this throne room and some of the details and who is there and what they do. But then all of a sudden we begin to have this dynamic dialogue between uh, the one who who sits on the throne and John and the call who's worthy to open the scroll. And no one on earth or in heaven is there to do it. And John is very upset by this. The reason he's upset is because in the scroll, the scroll is the kingdom of God. It is that scroll which is to bring about the new covenant, the new age. And no one is worthy to bring about the kingdom until Christ comes. He is the one that is able to open the seals, and then those seals are opened throughout the next few chapters. And then we move into the, uh, the, the trumpets and the bowls and so on. Right, so this, this is kind of the, the logic on how it works. Um, yeah, so it introduces the throne room. And then what, what this does also, and I've brought this up many times, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But these two chapters of Revelation 4 and 5 actually grab hold of two verses from the Old Testament. It's actually a few more verses than that. And pulls them into the present and then expands them so we can see it in more detail. And those two verses are in Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14, where Daniel, 400 years before this, actually sees in a vision this moment that John records. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And it goes on a little bit more to describe that. But this verse here in Daniel 7:13 is actually describing the ascent of the Lamb as John looks around. There's nobody who can open it. Right? This is going on when, when it says, In the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, Jesus is ascending as John is saying, there's no one to open the scrolls. And he begins to weep loudly. And one of the elders says, hey, calm down, John, right? There is one, one like from the, tribe, the line of the tribe of Judah, right? And then he turns and he sees, and what does he see? A lamb as though it had been slain. That is the son of man. The one who is like a lamb is the one who is like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, the one who's sitting on the throne, that's described in, in Revelation 4, right? He's sitting on that throne, and he was presented before him, right? And then he begins to open the seals. And what's in those seals 
but it's dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Dominion is an everlasting dominion and so on, right? This is what is un, unpacked in that scroll, in that kingdom. This is the scroll, um, the book that John was afraid nobody could open. So these two chapters here in Revelation 4 and 5 actually unpack these two verses from Daniel chapter 7. Okay, let's look for a couple minutes here at Revelation 4. Before I, I dive into the actual text, are, is there any questions on or comments on what I just said about Daniel 7? Right, yeah, so from, from John's perspective, and here's one of the fascinating things, is he, is he is brought up, which I'll get into in just a moment, he's in the spirit, and he's brought up into heaven in this vision. But this vision, and, and we're assuming, I want, I want us to assume that Revelation is written around 68 AD, right? About two years before the temple is destroyed. Maybe 69, it's, it's getting really close. Things are really bad. John is brought up, but he's actually brought back 40 years to the ascension, right? So he's actually seeing heaven before the ascension. So he actually goes back in time um, to, to the ascension, and that's when, when he's brought up. And then we move forward in time with the opening of the seals and so on, and that explains John's current day. So the time movements uh, take place in, in heaven are not, you know, if it was uh, October 20th, in the year 68, that wouldn't necessarily be what he's seeing in heaven at that moment. But there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason for that as it unfolds. But yes, that goes back to your point that you made with, with Daniel, that he was told to close up the book because uh, it's going to be a while. But here, it needs to be open because the time is at hand, which then we see with those seals and the, the, the kingdom coming in its full power comes with the collapse of, of the temple. And so much of the tribulation language in Revelation is speaking of the collapse of the temple and what's going on. Other questions or thoughts? Andy? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think, yes, be, because of the Great Commission as well, right? Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, right? So nations, just that's, that's everybody. But it's make disciples, not make a translation in their language only, or a convert from, it is discipleship, right? And discipleship looks like it, it has, has an, an absolute telos to it. Right, it, it, it is. It changes individuals. It changes families. It changes societies, cultures, 
ultimately politics and so on, right? Discipleship. And that's, that's where he gets into with his kingdom as well. So it's all these people's nations, languages should serve him, be his disciples. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. They are living as faithful citizens under his dominion, under his kingship. And will never pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So, so yeah, I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, it, the, the fulfillment of this is not necessarily just a Christian representative from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But it is all of this is serving him fully. Yeah, and... and Yeah, yeah, and I would say there's, outside of the, the preterist position, which is what I'm trying to convince you all of, um, outside of that one, the other three would have an expression of that. So it, it's almost like if you see on two ends of the spectrum, you have a dispensational view and then a preterist or post-millennial view, then you have a historical pre-mill and an amillennial. Dispensationalism is inherently pessimistic about about the world. Postmillennialism is inherently optimistic. The other two can be pessimistic or op optimistic, right? So you have optimistic Amil and pessimistic Amil, and you have Charles Spurgeon was a historical pre-mill who was very optimistic. Um, so, so there's all sorts of movement. It's not just dispensationalism. All three out of the four could have that same sort of spike and, and fall. But, but yeah, I know what you're saying. But it's passages like this is why I'm postmillennial. <laughs> Right? It's like this is what's happening. This is what God has, has ordained to take place. And this is what we see taking place when Christ sits on his throne. Is he, is, he is beginning his rule and his reign, which eventually will cover the whole world. So, so yeah. Other questions? Okay. Revelation 4. Let's quickly look at the first two verses. It says, After this I look and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, that goes back to Adam's comment as far as when these things will take place, right? This is about to take place. This is, these, this is the same sort of event um, that he mentions in chapter 1 multiple times of these things that are assumed to take place. At once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So one thing I have not done thus far is give you an, an outline of Revelation. And there are many outlines and a lot of good ones. But this one I find very compelling. And it's based off of this phrase, in the spirit. This phrase is used four times in Revelation. This is the second time it's been used. I, you have your outline, I believe, in your notes. So I wanted just to point that out and, and how this book moves throughout the, the 22 chapters. But remember, this is a letter, so the beginning, those first eight verses are very much uh, an introduction to an epistle, right? It is a greetings. And within the, those eight verses, we hear about the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus. This is what the letter is about. And then in 1.9, we see John, or read John saying, I was in the spirit and Patmos. Right? So he's on the island of Patmos, and he has 
a vision. This, the, the Spirit of God um, takes hold of him and he shows him these things. And what does he show John on the island? From John's perspective on the island, he sees Christ. Right? He sees him in the, in the glorified version that we see in, John, in Revelation chapter 1, which is a representation of the whole Christ. Right? It is not just the ascended lion and lamb, but it is the tabernacle Christ. It is the one who has a body. Uh, his voice sounds like the rushing of many waters. Remember, we spent some time on that a few weeks ago. And how later on in Revelation, it's the voice of the church that sounds like the rushing of many waters. Right? He has eyes of fire. That is discernment. The church is to have eyes of fire. Right? He is describing the whole Christ, head and body put together. Um, and then, as he is in the spirit, he also gets the those seven letters that we have worked through over the last few weeks, uh, to the seven churches. And now, in 4.2, in we see the second in the spirit language. And now he's no longer on Patmos, but his perspective is in heaven. Okay? So now he stays in heaven from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 16. Everything that's going on is a heavenly vision of Things going on in heaven, and then those things afterwards happening on earth, <laughs> right? We see things in heaven, and then on earth. In heaven, and then on earth. Almost as if it's like, your will be done on earth as it is already done in heaven, <laughs> right? This is, this is the movement from heaven to earth. John is brought up to heaven to see what's going on in heaven, and then he looks and says, these things are soon to take place on earth, okay? So while he's in heaven, we see temple and the book and the lamb, which we'll get into in these next two chapters. And then the seven seals on that scroll, chapter six, the seven trumpets. We see the dragon, the woman, and the beasts in 12 through uh, 15. And then the seven bowls with 15 through 16. And then when we get to chapter 17, we come to earth, from heaven back down to earth. And we start seeing things take place. And now he's not, no longer on Patmos or in heaven, but he's in the wilderness, He's seeing all sorts of stuff going on in the wilderness. And then the last movement is he is brought up onto a mountain. In Re Revelation 21, he's in the spirit and he's on a mountain. And he sees the blueprints of what the, the church is to be, the heavenly blueprints on earth. This is the new heavens and the new earth. Beautiful language there. And then you move into the conclusion of the letter, which is a conclusion of a letter, right? It's a letter written to these churches. So that's an, that's an outline. So I wanted to highlight that for us and give you that outline um, with, that follows this phrase, in the spirit, these four different movements. Okay, let's look at verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Doors are interesting things in the Bible because the vast majority of doors mentioned are temple doors. Doors to the tabernacle, curtains that act as doorways, gates going into the garden, right? The, usually when this language is used in the Old Testament, it is referring to sanctuaries, which of course is what's going on here as well. So after this, I looked and behold a door standing open to heaven. Now that's the interesting thing is the fact that this door is open. It has never been open before. People can't just go to heaven. In fact, nobody went to heaven before Christ, right? There's, there's all sorts of stuff in the Gospels, and I'm not going to get into that now. But, you know, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he also raised with him 
He set a host of captives free, right? He, he raised people. When he told the thief, you'll be with me today in paradise. Well, that's paradise, but ultimately paradise is being brought to heaven. And there's two different sides of paradise. You have paradise and you have um, um, Gehenna or hell, right? And then you have Abraham's bosom. All of this takes place in Sheol, which is the place of the dead. There's a parable about the rich man Lazarus with the, the cavern between the two, right? So the door to heaven into the presence of God has never been opened, but now it is. In fact, the only time people could ever go into the presence of God was once a year on the Day of Atonement, when they would go into the Holy of Holies, which was where heaven and earth were fused together. God dwelt there. It's the only time that that door was open, and it wasn't really even open because he had to go with a sacrifice. He had to go, having been cleansed, he had to go with a rope tied around his ankle in case he died so they could pull him out, right? It wasn't really opened, but there was access a little bit. Um, but now it's saying that it's open. In other words, the door to heaven, the door to the Holy of Holies is wide open. And this is what we see when Jesus hangs on the cross, right? The curtain is rent in two, and it's open. The door to heaven, in a very literal sense, is open. Okay? So this is saying, this is speaking of Jesus' victory, and he, as the high priest, has brought all of us into heaven. He brought us back into the Garden of Eden, which was the original holy place, holy of holies, right? He brought us right into that inner sanctuary. So this is where he goes. John goes into the holy of holies in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, Remember that he heard a voice in chapter 1 as well, and it sounded like a, a trumpet. Trumpets are interesting in the Bible because they're used all over the place. They're used multiple times in, um, in Exodus 19 with Mount Sinai. Remember, Israel goes, and this is now like a precursor to the Holy of Holies, where God is dwelling, his glory cloud descends upon the mountain. There's flashes of lightning and thunder, and when God spoke, it sounded like trumpets roaring. Right, So he hears this same sort of trumpet, this voice. Trumpets are also talked about with Gideon, um, walls of Jericho you have. It's a sound of victory. It's a sound of, of God dwelling and being victorious with his people. Sounds like, what's that? Yeah, says the guy who is trained in trumpet. <laughs> it is a great instrument. Thank you. I don't want to disparage that. After all, it is God's instrument. Okay, so a voice like the trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This come up here, I'm not going to develop it now, perhaps next week, but what we see in 4 and 5, and then jumping a little bit later in Revelation, is a liturgical service, right, beginning with the call to worship, and this is the call to worship. Right? We see call to worship, we see confession, we see absolution, we have a word that is spoken, which is the seven seals, and then we have um, uh, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb is, is the Lord's Supper, and then the commission is actually at the end when it, when it talks about the kings of the earth coming in and, and so on. It's, it's a really fascinating book that you have a full liturgical service laid out in the book of Revelation, and the call to worship is right here, come up here, right? He is calling John into his presence. Every Sunday morning, the Lord calls us into his presence. Hebrews 12 goes out of its way to make this point. 
that when we gather together, we are ascending into the presence of God, ultimately to his table to be fed and then sent back out. So Revelation follows the same logic as well. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, when I read chapter 4 particularly, this word throne is one that came up over and over again. In fact, it's used 12 times in these 11 verses. The throne of God is the first thing that John sees when he ascends into the presence of God. He recognizes God by the throne. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, of course. But why is it that John makes a big deal about the throne immediately, right? This is the thing that he highlights. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I went up into heaven and there was the, the holiness of God was astounding or the beauty of God was blinding or the, the power of God was bone crushing. He doesn't say that. He doesn't speak in abstract ways. Because he goes up in heaven and there's a throne and it stood there. Very tangible, physical, real thing. A symbol that matters greatly. The call to worship is a call to come and see the throne of God, right? When we see God rightly, we see him on his throne. If we don't see the throne, then we're not seeing him rightly. The whole gospel is about God being king overall. In Christ, he is king. Kings sit on thrones. In fact, when we think about even coming to church, and this is a point that Hebrews 12 makes about the worship service, that when we come to church, uh, things begin to be made right. Our, our perspective is made, uh, becomes clear. We become calibrated. Asaph talks about this in Psalm 73. Do you remember? He, he, he's sinning. He's saying, my feet almost slipped. I almost fell. I was jealous of the wicked and how they prospered. They were, they were large and they, they ate all the great food. And when they died, they didn't have any pain. And I became envious of them. And then I started to act like a beast before you, God, and I was jealous and envious, all of this stuff. And then it says, until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end, right? Like a dream when one awakes. So they were like vapors before you or something like that, right? He enters the throne room of God and his whole perspective clicks into place because he sees God upon his throne. When we come to church, when we walk through a liturgy, when we come to the Lord's table, we should see Christ on his throne, and that is when everything is put into perspective for us, okay? This is what John sees first. He is on his throne. I'm almost done, and I'll answer. So we have to notice that this vision is one that orients the people of God, and this is a helpful thing for the churches who are going to receive this letter, that they are living in a very chaotic world where think their affections are being pulled, their loyalties are being challenged. And how do we fix that? How do we see things rightly? See the throne and the king who sits on it. And then everything begins to make sense. Okay, I'm going to stop there and then we'll keep on. Aaron. Yeah.
Oh, absolutely. I mean, pretty, pretty much whenever God communicates, there's musical elements. The Spirit of God is associated with music constantly. Uh, music is particularly, and this, this comes with the, the kingdom primarily, it's when music really comes on to the, onto the stage. That's um, why we have the, the psalms, right? This is the, the musical element. This is what the people of God are to sing. There's even psalms of ascent as they are to ascend to Jerusalem. They are to sing these psalms. So yeah, absolutely. There's a musical element to that. Yeah. Yep. Other questions or thoughts? I could sit here for six minutes in silence. <laughs> Thoughts or questions? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> mhm. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if this will be helpful. But in in Revelation we have there are two spheres, two registers. You have heaven and earth, right? And these things are are constantly running parallel to each other until they come crashing together in the new heavens and the new earth where heaven and earth are fused together, right? And that reality of heaven and earth coming together is what we see, again, in the Holy of Holies. So the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and the temple language throughout um, through, throughout the, the whole book, really, ultimately, points us toward heaven and earth being connected. But what we see here, to try to answer the question, um, he says, after this I look, actually I'll, I'll go down, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So in Hebrews, we see that the tabernacle is a shadow of a heavenly reality, okay? So what takes place with the tabernacle and the, the instructions that are given to the tabernacle for the tabernacle in, in Exodus, are that construction is just the shadow of the true tabernacle that is in heaven. Oftentimes we like to get those things flipped around. Like the physical, the real tabernacle um, represents the shadow that is in heaven. That's not what Hebrew says. The one in heaven is more real, more weighty. Uh, the smells are stronger, right? The sounds are more beautiful. All, all, the, everything about it is, that it, it's, it's not spiritual and floaty it is concrete and real so he says come up here and i will show you what must take place after this so the way it works if you have the heavenly timeline here and john shows worship in heaven um, with 
the 24 elders and the cherubim bowing down, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, or whatever that one song is in four, but there's, there's multiple songs throughout. That is a song that is in heaven um, that must be sung on earth, right? So I'm going to show you reality, and then I'm going to show you how this reality is to be poured down onto earth. So in chapter 8, chapter 8, I think it's chapter 8. Yeah, in chapter 8 it says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand uh, excuse me, from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and earthquakes and, and so on. Right? So you have this censer that uh, has smoke in it in heaven, and then the prayers of the saints are coming up, and they come up like incense, like the smoke of the incense. And all of that goes to God. So it's the it's the worship in heaven and the prayers and the worship on earth are coming to God like incense and, it, and it's good, right? And then he answers the prayers by taking the censer, filling it with fire in heaven and throwing the fire on earth. And when that fire comes to earth, those are the ants, that's, that is what it looks like to have their prayers answered, which then is laid out in the, in the seven trumpets and so on, right? So, but the fire started in heaven. Right, and it is for his purposes, and then and then it comes down onto earth. So it's this constant movement from heaven to earth, and that's I think that really adds a lot of beauty to the Lord to the to the prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want earth to look like what's going on in heaven. We want these two things to come together. Um, so I, I think when it comes to your friend with the idea of having. God or just being a syllogism or, or, or whatever, it's, it's to say, no, heaven and earth, that is actual history. That's, that's, that's a true reality of how things are. And it's very tangible. It's very real. Not abstractions and, and so on. And then uh, the, the beauty, again, of the, the resurrection is spiritually Christ has brought us to heaven. Okay? So he is brought us spiritually to heaven. So our citizenship, we belong here. We are to live here. This should be our ethic and so on. That's what the kingdom of God is, is a heavenly kingdom. Yet down here, it still suffers from pain and sin and a curse and so on. Um, but spiritually, God has, he's the first fruits, right, of the new creation. Um, and we've been brought with him spiritually. Um, then there's, there's one other thing I was going to say about that. But ultimately, what we see at, at the end, oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, the story of heaven goes through, it goes from things that are taking place in heaven must happen in earth, which is chapters 4 through 16. And then once we get to 17, we're down here, all the way till the end when all of this is brought together. So again, it's, it starts in heaven and then it goes to earth. So the worship service that we have when we gather together and when the word of God is open and the prayers that we pray, like there is something happening in heaven in a very real way. 
In fact, our prayers are echoing what's already been spoken in heaven, right? This, this is how it works. He is constantly bringing these two things together. That's how Revelation is seeking to point us toward the final day when everything is made right. It's not just a spiritual reality, but it's a physical reality as well. So I don't know if that answered the question. Other questions? Yeah, yeah, no, that's good, that's good. And that's, and that's what he did with the old creation. Part of the verse that we looked at in three with him being the RK, the beginning of the new creation, is, is what God has done to the old creation in a spiritual way, right? As he has taken and he has torn it apart and he's put it back together in Christ. And then what we see at the end of Revelation, when the sky is gonna be folded back and the earth is going to be torn apart, and then it's going to be put back together in glory, where the, the physical and the spiritual are, are, are together. So it's going to be this earth, but it's a transfigured earth, you know. Um, in the same way we experience a death and resurrection spiritually when we get saved, right? We die to our old self and we are resurrected in Christ. Then we will experience that death physically in this life. And then we wait for that resurrection physically when Christ resurrects the whole world. So in a way, we are pulled apart, body and soul torn apart, which is the most unnatural thing in the world. That's why death is so strange, so common, but so strange that we're not supposed to see people without their spirit. But the hope is the resurrection will come and that spirit and that body will be put back together in a transfigured, glorified way, along with the entire earth, the whole creation. Good. All right, let me pray and we can call it an evening. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us and the, the beauty of who you are and as you've revealed yourself in the book of Revelation. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, to discern the day in which we live. Give us um, motivation and clarity to uh, live our lives either hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Um, God, may we be um, faithful to walk before you as our king, the one who sits upon the throne. In your name we pray, amen.